This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Welcome to Sightlines, your guide to the visual arts in and around Dunedin. I'm Sally McMillan and this show is brought to you on behalf of the Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society. Today I'm talking to Nigel Brown, one of New Zealand's leading figurative artists. But first, here's DPAG Society President Ross Curry with the latest on the local art scene. This is a snapshot. Ross, tell us what's new. Well, sitting at the railway station, the Otago Art Society's Hope and Sons exhibition, Heading Home, continues until May the 14th. There's a wide range of art on show here with work from more experienced artists, as well as those who paint for a hobby. Landscapes are a feature of this show and all work is on sale. This show is followed by Anything But Painting, which is for all media outside the realm of painting. This promises to be quite a contrast to heading home, with not a painting in sight. Instead, it will be sculpture, ceramics, photography, jewellery and fabric art. At Brett McDowell Gallery, you can catch the end of Potter Chris Weaver's show, which finishes May 12th. His salt-glazed, earthy, angular teapots with inbuilt wooden handles are a feature of this show, and a testament to Chris's focus on design. And for the first time, he also includes vases. Jason Grieg comes to the Brett McDowell Gallery next. The heavy metal band Black Sabbath was fuel for Jason's work, and his dense, dark, gothic paintings allude to good and evil. And the show opens on Friday the 13th of May. Scary stuff. What's on further up Darling Street, Ross? Well, Milford Galleries in Darling Street has a group show until May the 16th. Check out Dunedin artist Jenna Packer's rich tapestries of New Zealand colonial history, wasteful practices and the perils of capitalism. Perhaps if you're coming from the Jason Greek show, you might want to have an ice cream in between. COVID times have been disruptive for artists. This has given some galleries in town the chance to open up works from their back rooms and previous exhibitions. The RDS Gallery and FE29 in Sinclair are both currently showing works from back catalogues. From May the 13th at RDS Gallery, Rachel Hope Allen has a show intriguingly called Not Just Another Shinjuku Love Hotel. Will this give us an insight to what else happens in love hotels? Well, Rachel is Principal Lecturer in Photography at the Dunedin School of Art, where she graduated with distinction in her Master's programme. Rachel's photography is truly intriguing, and I'd recommend that to anybody. What's happening at DPAG at the moment, Ross? The Kaitahu Art Collective, Paimanu's show, has just finished. I attended a Whakakapi ceremony, it's a closing ceremony, at the gallery recently to mark the end of Tauraka Toi. It was clear that the relationship between the gallery and Paimanu is strong and both parties should be congratulated on establishing a new era. This collaboration with Manu Fenua has been a significant milestone in the gallery's history. The good news is that the pieces that were in Paimanu's show, Tauraka Toi, are now on permanent loan to the gallery, so hopefully we'll be seeing them again in the future. Unveiling the stars, the ground floor selection of works from the permanent collection continues, and this warrants multiple visits. In the rear lobby of the public art gallery, Zoe Hall has a large-scale mural called Bloodline. 
featuring her interpretation of the Kaitahu story. Zoe is a Wellington-based street artist with work on buildings across Aotearoa. The scale, boldness and vibrant colours of this mural will blow you away. Fabulous stuff. Thanks, Ross. And now it's time for our feature item. This month on Sightlines, we are privileged to welcome to our humble studio one of New Zealand's eminent figurative artists and a man widely acknowledged to be New Zealand's leading narrative artist. Nigel Brown has been exhibiting in New Zealand since 1963. In the 59 years since then, he's gone on to exhibit widely throughout New Zealand and has worked as far afield as Russia. In 2004, Nigel was appointed an Officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit for services to painting and printmaking. These days, Nigel lives in Dunedin and he continues to produce his thought-provoking, socio-political, distinctly New Zealand artworks from his beautiful Dunedin studio near the harbour. Nigel, welcome to Sightlines. So, look, for most of us, the pinnacle of our art exhibition career begins and ends with our parents proudly putting our tempera paintings from kindy, um, sticking them on the fridge. You, on the other hand, uh, got off to a much more auspicious start, including your first public exhibition at the tender age of 13, I believe. Tell us about that. Well, that was in the Tauranga um, Art Gallery, and uh, all the paintings were done above a shop. I think the teacher was, um, or the tutor, was a um, Tovey generation person, so um, I just was left alone to produce whatever I yes. liked. Fantastic. And I think at Tauranga Boys High School you had a particular uh, teacher who encouraged you. Yeah, I, I sort of, for various uh, reasons, I ended up in a, in a lower form at the start, and uh, Fred Graham was teaching art, and uh, his idea of teaching art uh, uh, was to read us lots of Māori legends. A lot of the class were Māori at that time, you know. So he was very encouraging, very sort of warm, and uh, it was at the beginning of a rebirth of Māori art. So he was doing a few little paintings, haka paintings, in a kind of Picasso style, uh, which were puzzling to me. Mm. I had no idea of contemporary Māori art. There weren't... No books on New Zealand art at that time. Virtually. No. So, I mean, you're in a uh, in the Tauranga High School in the 1960s. I shouldn't imagine that art was necessarily a strong focus. Not at, not at that school. In fact, we, we ended up as a little room of five or six people most of the time. I was, And it was sport and uh, military training and all that sort yes. of thing. With it. Yeah. Yep, so you were, you were um, swimming against the tide. Yeah. What did your mum and dad think about this burgeoning artist in the family? Well, my father, I think, was encouraging and uh, he was open to the imagination and a lot of my work then was imaginary. Mm, mm. I mean, you know, and, uh, but my mother was, you know, from Wong and a very, had a very narrow idea of what art was, you know, which mm. is, you know, our, our house had reproductions of African elephants. As most houses did in those days. On on the wall. (laughs) Welcome to New Zealand. No art books. Um, My father had been in the Air Force, so there were sort of um, books on Douglas Bader and that sort of, you know, uh, sort of thing, Reach for the Sky, that that, that sort of uh, thing. But there was no, not much art awareness. And uh, I only got my art awareness really from things like um, we had a neighbour who got the London Illustrated. So... uh, there I was on an orchard and uh, 
getting a small bundle to these London illustrators, which had a certain type of art in, in them. Not not modernist, but interesting. Incredibly exotic. So newspapers from home, as they said in the day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think you had this exhibition at the public library in Tauranga, and there's a lovely photograph of you in your Tauranga boys' high school uniform with your socks pulled right up, looking very spiffing, um, <laughs> with your works exhibited around you. How did that come about? Well, through that... Um through my having completed this body of work quite rapidly over half a year, and uh, why not have an exhibition? You know? Yeah. Toronga only recently has had a decent art gallery, public art gallery. So yeah. we, what you did with it was a bit of a problem. You know. Way ahead of your time, obviously. Yeah. So I think you left school at 18 and fled Tauranga, um, not necessarily literally, but you went to Auckland to yeah. go to Elam. That must have been quite a culture shock. It was a drastic shock because I, all through um, Tauranga Boys, I'd emphasised the imagination. I hardly drew from objects at all. And then, bang, I was in McCann's class and he said, sit down and draw that enamel plate with an egg on it, you know. Wow. And uh, and I was, you know, I kept wanting to do something imaginary all the time. Yes. So there was this restraint put on me and a kind of... Quite, my marks were quite low at the beginning at Eagle and, and it was the same in art history. I, I looked at paintings and just wrote about them as I felt about them, as as, the, as if I was um, new to painting. Mm. Whereas um, in art history, you know, the thing was you researched and got all these references to back up your things. So. Yes. So I had a bit of trouble at Elam. At and main. I think you said actually you had a bit of trouble getting into Elam in the first place because despite yeah. the fact that you're clearly a very talented young artist, it was your physics marks, I think, that got you in on the end. <laughs> well, lots of people come from, you know, provinces to Auckland thinking they're God's gift to art. And um, when they're in that, um, in, in an art school situation, that's, you know, rapidly uh, meaningless. It's just supposed to start afresh, you know, yeah, and so be open to the fads and fashions of the time. Much smaller fish and much bigger pond. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. So you've talked about your parents before, and you know, said that your mum perhaps wasn't so enamoured of the idea of you being an artist. How did they feel about you going to Elam? Well, my mother was happy for me to go to Elam, uh, but I was on a student um, scholarship to go teaching. That was a presumption. Yes. And uh, uh, so I, I I did that and I had to do cleaning at Elam, you know, sort of in the yep. morning, get up really early. And um, I rapidly, after a year, paid back the studentship loan. And so I'm, free to do what you wanted to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess there was a kind of belief in those days with our parents that, you know, a job in the government was a job for life. Yeah, I had uncles and that worked in the post office and places like that. And... Um, because I got through Elam and I, I, I kind of got into the the way it worked and, and I had Robert Ellis who was very, um, took me in line really and said, um, you know, uh, you've got to rein in some of these impulses and there is a working method yes. that, you you know, it wouldn't hurt you to learn. <laughs> and, and, and so I had success at the end of my Elam. Um, and then I had to ditch it all when I, I left in a way because... Mm. Um, a lot of it was, was sort of false for me, mm-hmm. you know. So I had to kind of weed out what what wasn't really valid, but traces of it always 
uh, remain for the rest of your life. Yes. And so in terms of the influences that you had at Elam, I mean, I think you had some pretty amazing uh, tutors available to you at that time. And you've mentioned Colin McCann. Who else was there? Yeah, I mean, Garth Tapper, um, Greer Twist. There was a kind of frowning at that time on pictorialism. This was the birth of... uh, Modernism, and uh, I got involved with the New Zealand Society of Painters and Sculptors, which had people like Benny in it. And uh, um, although Benny was a little bit at that time suspect because he did such pictorial stuff, mm. there was a, a emphasis uh, on experimentation. That was that was what McCann represented, and he also represented the spiritual, but it was a rather confused sort of spiritual, you know. Yes. Our students couldn't quite um, always work out where he was at. Yeah. But he was big. His paintings were big. so And have only become bigger since. Yeah. One of the aspects of art that we've discussed with previous guests is the commercialisation of art and how hard it is to make a living from being in New Zealand, I guess particularly if you're in that experimental genre. Apart from educating you in the doing of art, was there any tuition in the business of art? At Zilch when I was there. <laughs> Zilch. So we just didn't think that way, and uh, it was only later when I, when you know um, I went, I sort of taught briefly at uh, Whitecliffe Art School, which was, and that was run by Greg Whitecliffe, who was a horrified Elam when he went through. I think he went through there. He was so commercial, mm. and that that horrified everybody. It just sits very uncomfortably with that experimental yeah. way of looking at art, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think you, you've you talked a moment ago about not having any money and getting up and working as a cleaner, which was a, a effectively the price that you paid to buy your freedom from the post office or whatever government well, job was. Well, funny enough, I ended like, up, after I left, I ended up in all those places. I ended yeah. up in the post as a postie. I ended up as a builder's labourer. I ended up in factories. And most the longest period, it was in wineries. Welcome to the real world, Nigel. I think you had a, a lovely story that you told me that about um, having no money to frame a piece of art and Colin McCann having an ingenious suggestion for you. He emphasised you know, um, economical use of materials. And, of course, people like me in particular sort of rebelled and went and brought these ridiculous expensive tubes of cadmium red and so forth all the time and plastered them on with our fingers. But... So, but uh, framing was a problem, you know, it was just, you had no money at all going through. So he suggested, you know, just buy some wooden rulers, you know, those carpenter's rulers and yeah. paint them black and stick them around the edge and that'll be your framing. Fabulous. Because, I mean, people can produce art, but they get nervous about the presentation. Mm. Presentation of, of art is a real issue and a real expense. And it's very expensive even now to get work framed, of course. Yeah. Now that you've since adopted your own equally ingenious method of framing, uh, you work with words written around the perimeter. Yes, well, it does, but I still have to add a frame after that usually, but a lot of my plywood works now don't require framing and it's quite a relief. You yes, know. yeah. You've been a full-time artist for a long time now, but the themes in your work are suggestive, obviously, of much wider life experience, and you touched on that before. Um, in terms of saying that after you left Elam, you had to supplement your income with other work. Tell us about the jobs that you've done out there in the real world and and how you feel that influences the way that you work and what what your work is about. Well, some things have been influenced by it, uh, by working. Like I worked in the Riverhill Heads sawmill once, and that started me on the black singlet Mm. sort of 
motif. Um, but some some things like the use of the punga that goes right back to my childhood when I had a small fernery, you know, garden with my mother. I think with a lot of factories and things like that, um, some of the vernacular I heard, language and things I, I employ now, and I always have this idea of someone who knows nothing about art having a conversation unexpectedly with one of my paintings, not really knowing yeah. what it's about. But you don't want to sort of be, I mean, even though I was brought up with a father who was a hunter and uh, even though he's a hunter and, and I went in the bush a lot and, you know, bush huts and campfires and all that sort of thing, it's not that I um, have wanted to stay stuck in a kind of masculine, macho rut of any sort. Mm. Uh, it's been um, just what I have, I know that I can use, you know. Yes. And I'm also, you get feedback from audience, audience relate to it and they, they will say things to you like, you, you're a really New Zealand painter. But, I mean, what does that mean, you know? But, uh, That's the black singlets, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Through your career, as, as well as a residency in Antarctica and another one in Moscow, you've also lived throughout New Zealand, famously, I think, once moving um, from Auckland, population 1.5 million, to Cozy Nook, uh, permanent population maybe six or seven, which is, um, you know, quite a move. What inspired that? Well, um, Sue and I had always, um, we've always been um, roamers around the place. You know. We'd go, we, we, we almost bought a, pro- we did buy a property up north and started developing that. So we could have ended up in the in, in the Hokianga or the Bay of Islands or something. But um, so we ended up finding it. I'd done workshops down in Invercargill and uh, got a sort of taste for the area. Thought it was rather freezing, <laughs> even, well, that's even though I'd been to Antarctica at the time. <laughs> that's because it is rather freezing. <laughs> so, I mean, I stood on a beach in, in, in South and thinking, no normal human being could live here. But but um, it rains a lot, and so it keeps the grass green. You know, Auckland, it rains a lot as well. I just feel compelled to point this out. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But um, we found up north was very expensive to buy a place, you know, it was a um, and we and uh, we considered Tolgo Bay. That was a place we were keen on for a while. And then finally we ended up at Cozy Nook, which is between, it's in the Pahia district between Tuatapri and Riverton. So we found this um, 16 acres of seaside property with its own beach, its own private beach and little islands and things. So it seemed Fantastic. like paradise. Yeah. But we, we originally brought it as a holiday batch. From Auckland. Yeah. <laughs> and after a couple of years, we were exhausted because, I mean, sometimes I used to drive from Auckland all the way to Cozy Nook. It's quite some drive. Non-stop almost. Yeah. You know, and, and it was so it was impractical. So we suddenly had to say to each other, not that we were, you know, we weren't um, loathing Auckland or anything like that. We had to say, this is our adventure. We're going to try it, you know. Yeah. And did you find that people came and kind of retreated to visit you in Cozy Nook? Yeah, yeah. So there was um, quite a range of people uh, from, you know, uh, people like Bill Manhire and um, um, Richard Nunn's had a concert there in my studio once. Um, <laughs> Lou Summers, a sculptor, came there. You know, there's lots of people found their way, but but more just as a, importantly, there were um, uh, all um, my stepson Josh 
uh, and and Dudley Benson, their all their friends came. Great. Yeah. So we had lots of sort of young people and lots of you know family. So I mean, what where you live, like I guess for most artists, is plainly an influence on your work. But the written word, Nigel, is is another big thing in your work, and a comparison has been made between aspects of your work and that of Colin McCann. I think particularly the use of words as an integral part of your paintings. But I think the words came about as a result of a much earlier influence for you. Tell us about that. Uh, well, uh, I suppose you, I mean, when I was a very young, I filled notebooks with illustrations and, and put captions down the bottom and that sort of thing. And I was quite interested in people like William Blake, uh, for example, you know. Mm. Um, and my father wrote poetry and um, I, I illustrated some of that, you know, different things. I did a collection of his works and illustrated that. So your dad was R.F. Brown, yeah, um, and I think he was quite formative for you. And I think you said that he illustrate you illustrated a couple of his books, "Gone No Address" and "Hang Dog." Yeah, Are there and, other... and, and I did a collection, a, a collective works. Yeah, right. Are there other workers, other writers that you've worked with over the years? Yes, there's quite a, a, a range of them. Um, Rimke Ensing, I did a book on, um, you know, about Abel Tasman and things. Um, Alistair Patterson, I did a book, uh, Oedipus Rex. Um, I've done a, um, three, two or three books with um, Glenn Cahoon. Uh, one's only, only yet to be published, which is really kind of like snippets of New Zealand history, which uh, I've right. illustrated. So I want to ask you, Nigel, about how you choose your words, because they are an abiding feature of your work and perhaps the most recognisable aspect. And while the words change, of course, from painting to painting, there's certainly a recurring theme of issues that are historically, socially, environmentally, politically significant. How do those words come to you? Uh, I'd, I'd say um, trial and error sometimes. I sit down with bits of paper and try things. And uh, if they're too extreme or silly, uh, I disregard them. And uh, I try to sort out the ones that, that work. Yeah. It's a skill I've been developing for a long time. And very successfully. And I think one commentary about your work has said, Brown's distinctive visual language uses recurring motifs, stylistic features and symbolic characters which are strongly grounded in New Zealand vernacular, employing those to explore and critique this country's past and present stories. Do you set out to be provocative with your words? Um, well, I... I if if it's not interesting, it's not provocative. <laughs> it's just passive, and a lot of art now is passive. Uh, it just um, uh, so, I mean, as far as issues go, um, and the words, the words, um, a, lot, a lot of people tend to think those words they sort of they disregard them. And, I mean, you'll never know what I'm truly saying until you line it all up. Yes. No one's done that. I haven't even done that to know what it all amounts to. Yeah. And the, the other thing that features in your work alongside your words is that you have certain motifs. And one of the works that I was personally very drawn to when I came to your studio recently was the long Last Supper-type table, which, when I looked at it more closely, seemed to depict a meeting. And then I noticed that quite a few of your other more recent works have that table motif. Tell us about that. Yeah, well, the table mo motif is um, 
human uh, um, endeavour to, to reach understanding with each other um, and meetings decide the fate of all sorts of things in society. Um, yeah. I've used the table, um, you know, right since I was influenced by McCann's um, Visible Mystery series, you know, when I was really young, which I've never been that abstract. My early tables in the 70s were tired workers sitting around um, families um, mm. estranged from each other. Yes. You know, that, yeah. that, was, that was what the early ones were about. Because your work isn't limited to painting, you've also been a printmaker. Um, I think you've done several glass window commissions. And in visiting your studio, I was intrigued to see some sculptural work as well, Nigel, which I think you've been doing for quite a long time. Yeah. Uh, with plywood? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I'm quite interested in the fact that um, we are in Pacifica and um, I've been quite influenced by the German Expressionists as well. Uh, and um, I, I'm, I'm interested in indigenous wood sculpture. Yes. You know, I think that's one of the most powerful things we've got in New Zealand is all the foreign new, you know, that are around the Marais and things. That's, yeah. uh, uh, there tends to be a gap between that and the rest of New Zealand art. Um, uh, one's full of content, you know, uh, but a lot of the other art is a little bit empty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talking to you, Nigel, I get the impression that there's a lot of great work still to come from you. So thank you today for coming into the studio yep. um, and giving us fascinating insights into the work that you've done so far. And thanks, thanks to our listeners for tuning in today. Join us next month when I'll be talking to Murray Eskdale and Rachel Allen, two contemporary photographers with two highly distinctive approaches to their art. If you'd like to hear today's show again or listen to previous shows, you can find us on the Otago Access Radio and Dunedin Public Art Gallery Society websites or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to contributor Ross Curry and producer Jonathan Quayoff. I'm Sally McMillan and you've been listening to Sightlines. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.